Okay, well, I invite you to turn to Song of Solomon. You're preaching from that book once again. We started a new series on it a couple of weeks ago. I encouraged you that in studying this song, Song of Solomon, that our goal is that this song would sing in us, that it would sing in our hearts, as it were, that it would resound in our, our being. After all, the Lord himself tells us that this is the song of songs. That's like calling Jesus the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's none comparable. It means that there is no greater song that has ever been written. It is a song for all of God's people. Like any good song, it draws attention to things, or good poetry, either one, that we would not otherwise notice or see so clearly, maybe I should say. It helps us to see things in a way that is more full and more complete, and it gives expression to us about those things, so that we are given words that articulate what is significant about that thing. Like a painting that uh, maybe a portrait of someone and, and you look and you see things of that person that you didn't even notice when you just looked at them because the artist has a way of the lighting and all the different things that he uses to, to bring out things that, that go unnoticed otherwise. It's, it brings out the excellence of the subject. That's what a good art can do. It can bring out the, the excellence of the things that are, are, are being represented in the art. And what would the subject be here of this song of songs? It must be the the best subject of all if it is the song of songs. What would it be about? Well, it's about the love of Christ and His church. The love that He has for them and the love that they have for Him. It is expressed in an allegory that's used throughout Scripture to speak of this most excellent of all relationships that of a husband and a wife. We find this allegory of a man and his wife used of Christ and his church in both the Old and New Testaments. In the prophets, we find it in the entire book of Hosea. We find it in Ezekiel 16, where God is actually rebuking his people for being an unfaithful wife to him, but also speaks of how he had taken them initially to be his wife and the grace that he had shown toward them. And the preaching of Jesus, we find it in some of his parables. It is used in Paul's epistles in various ways. And it is found at the end of the Bible, very fully, in the book of Revelation, where the bride is presented to to Christ. The church is presented to Christ without spot and blemish. The fullness and completeness of the bride who has now all that she has been called to be, that God has made her all. Sadly, in our day, the common interpretation of the Song of Solomon is that it is not an allegory of Christ and his bride, but a song about marriage in general. That interpretation, though wildly popular today, was certainly not the view of the Jewish church, of the early church, of the medieval church, of the church of the reformers, or of almost anyone until the last 150 years or so. Do we really want to say that everyone that lived before our time got it all wrong? When we have more confusion about things like sex and marriage than ever before, and yet we claim that we have the pinnacle of understanding now that all the ancients missed somehow, all of God's faithful people somehow missed what we now understand. I think of Paul's question to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, 36. Did the word of God come from you? Or was it only you that it reached? I think not. (laughs) The word of God did not originate with our generation. It has been around for much longer than that. And besides that, it doesn't work as a description of an ordinary marriage. You have the bride here, inviting and encouraging her friends to enjoy the loving embrace of her husband. That's not a good thing. (laughs) And uh, she wants them to come and enjoy her husband with her. 
And you have these scenes where she who is, uh, if she's Solomon's wife in, in the flesh, in the world, she's running around through the streets looking for him and getting beaten up by the watchman. I don't think that's something that would have happened to one of Solomon's wives. It's, uh, we also have the fact that her name is Shulamite, which is Princess of Peace. It's the feminine form of Prince of Peace. And so that speaks to us of it being an allegory. This is the Song of Songs. It speaks beautifully of the love of the greatest relationship of all, that between Christ and His church. It is a song for every believer. It's not just for certain Christians who are married. It's for all believers who enjoy their relationship with Christ. I think the church in our day desperately needs this song to sing in our hearts. We have lost our first love. We do not see His great love for us, and our love for Him has grown cold. Perhaps our reason for rejecting it as an allegory is because it speaks about Christ's love for us in a way that makes us uncomfortable, because it's a way that's unknown to us. We have a hard time. It seems like it's too good to be true. And so we shy away from that interpretation rather than looking at it with interest and desiring to attain what is being spoken of here, to experience what is being spoken of here. You can't make it go away. It's something that God has revealed to us. Indeed, as never before, the church today, we today, need to see the love of Christ for us and the love that His bride, we who are His people, are to have for Him and do, in a sense, have for Him when He has redeemed us. So let's listen now as I read, listen now as I read to you from this uh, beginning of this song. We're just going to look at a couple more verses today. Last week we did verse 1 or last time. So now we're going to do verse 2 and 3. So Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. This is the holy word of God. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. May the Lord add his blessing to his holy and infallible word. Today, I want to look at this subject by asking four questions that are related to the things that are taught in this passage. So let's begin with the first question. Simply, how does the Song of Songs begin? Now, of course, we saw sort of almost the title last week, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, and we looked at that. But now we get into the actual song itself. So how does it begin here in verse 2? Well, with a woman expressing her strong desire for him to kiss her. This is very poetical. You can think of it as something you might see if you went to a, a play that was performed on a stage and the curtain rises and you hear a voice saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And you're not introduced to anyone. You're not told any background or any setting. It's just this is the thing that stands out that this woman is saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Bernard of Clairvaux put it, it said it was a beginning without a beginning. No introduction of the characters. The song just begins right in the middle of things that we can perfectly understand. No one who hears that is confused about what is going on. She wants him to kiss her. You don't go, well, well who's him? He does not need to be named. He is not just any man. But he is the one in whom her soul delights. Anyone knows that when they hear a woman saying something such as that. The one that her soul loves above all others and that she loves ardently. The one that means more to her than any other. She wants him, you see, him. As James Durham says, he is the one who is the most excellent and singular person in all the world. It reminds us of Mary Magdalene's question when she thinks that the body of Jesus has been taken away and she talks to the one that she supposes to be the gardener about the body of Christ. And she says, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. She doesn't even say who she's talking about. 
She just is so consumed with Him. That's what's on her mind. There is such beauty here in the desire of let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. This is the song of songs because it is a song about the best thing, the finest thing, the most excellent thing, and it is by the bride rightly cherished. Let Him kiss me. So now, the next question, what is in a kiss? A kiss is simply a way of saying, I love you. It's a universal language. All understand this language. Children delight in the kisses of their parents. And parents delight in the kisses of their children. Even infants are warmed by the kisses of their parents. The elderly also cherish kisses. In a good marriage, spouses show their love to one another with affectionate kisses. In the East, kisses have an even wider usage. And of course, this song comes from the Eastern lands. The kiss may be impressed on the mouth, the cheek, the hand, the feet, the garments, or even on the dust that the beloved one walks on. The difference is based in the East on the level of intensity of intimacy that is there. Kisses are given to kings when subjects wish to honor their king. And it is counted as a great privilege to be permitted to kiss them, even the dust on the, under their feet. When God wishes to show the appropriate honor that kings ought to render to Christ, He says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you. It's a kiss of homage. It's a very great honor as well, even perhaps a greater honor to be kissed by a king. When a king or a royal person singles you out and comes to to show that there is some delight in you. It's common in the East for friends to exchange kisses as David and Jonathan did. Not a sexual kiss, but a kiss of friendship. In the New Testament, believers are urged to kiss one another with a holy kiss when they gather in the assembly of the Lord as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Properly used, a kiss is an expression of the love, the commitment, the tender affection, as I say, sometimes the homage that is appropriate to the particular relationship that is in view. We shouldn't think that all kisses are the same. They are used in different relationships and in different ways. She wants him to show his love and commitment to her. It gives her great joy to have him assure her of his love. There are, of course, lying kisses. Judas kissed his master to betray him. It's understood that the kissing of Judas when he came back to Christ after he had been away was something that any of the disciples would have likely done in those days. Just as it says, kiss one another with a holy kiss when you get together, probably a normal greeting. Except at this occasion, he was doing it in order to single out the one that in the night that was to be arrested by his enemies. The brazen harlot in Proverbs kisses a man not because she wants to express appropriate affections, but adulterous, sensual affections. Such kisses as these are empty and worthless kisses. They are either a mockery of real kissing, or they are a cheap imitation of a proper kiss. A proper kiss is a seal of a real commitment, of a genuine and appropriate love. The woman in our song says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She is speaking of an appropriate kiss. Why does she want his kisses? That's the next question we will consider. Why does this woman want his kisses? Because his love is better than wine. She tells us why. That's what she says. Your love is better than wine. Notice how she moves from talking about what she wants, let him kiss me, to talking to him. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth 
for your love is better than wine. She turns to him with those words. Before, you see, she, she was speaking about him. So, so she's come near to him in, in this way. And she tells him why she delights in his kisses, why she wants this to be. Her comparison of his love with wine is wonderful. Sometimes in our society, with our fortified wines and the abuse of our wines, we can think of wine when it is abused. The same way that we often think of sex. Sex comes to our mind, we think of abusive sex. That's where our mind goes because it's so, it's so prevalent, it's so common. We think of drink and we think of getting drunk. We think of people carousing and, 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 and being uh, abusive. It's so abused and misused. Yet these are the gifts of God. So many people are ruined by wine and sex, wrongly used. Warnings are appropriate, but must be used, both must be used carefully. But wine is, in fact, a most excellent thing when it is used rightly. As Psalm 104.15 says, God gave us wine that makes glad the heart of man. It is used before the Lord to enhance our joy and our rejoicing in God and His good gifts and in celebrating the things that He has given us, even life and marriage, His goodness to us. It is not to be used as a way to escape from God or to try to isolate ourselves or pull ourselves away from from life. It is an excellent use in celebration as we see at the wedding of Cana in Galilee where Christ provided the wine when they had run out with a miracle. Both this one, but this woman says that she finds his love to be better than wine, more exhilarating, more cheering, and more refreshing than wine. She delights in him. His love is more sustaining. It is more delicious. It, it has more lasting effects. It has more influence upon her than wine does. This tells us also that she already has a relationship with him. She is speaking of the experience of love that she already has of his love. She has already known his love and kisses, and she is asking for more. She wants him to keep on showing his love in the way that he has in the past. It's important to see that she's not asking him to prove his love or to instruct, she's not trying to instruct him about how to demonstrate his love to her. She's not like the wife who is never satisfied or the fussy aunt who says to the eight-year-old boy, now you come here and kiss me. And he's like, eh, you know, and he has to go over to, to kiss her. No, she's not telling him, I want you to show love to me like this. No, she's rather quite, she rather quite likes the way that he has been doing it. She says it's better than wine. And she says, keep doing it, keep doing it. She's, she delights in him. She is receiving his love with delight. When you start trying to dictate how love is to be given, you're not receiving it anymore, are you? I don't mean that it's wrong for a wife to tell her husband what kind of flowers she likes or such things. But I'm thinking of those who are always complaining that they're not being loved in the way that they want to be loved. Instead of receiving the love and affection, there's a criticism and a blasting that goes on. This is especially a problem in one's relationship with God. Think about how disastrous that is. How many bitter people there are in the world who have a beef with God. They don't like the way God does things. They don't delight in God and His ways. They are critical of God and they, they turn away from Him in bitterness. If only they would receive His love, then they would see that the Lord is altogether gracious and merciful, that His love is better than wine. But instead, they put themselves in His place, trying to dictate to Him about how love should be demonstrated and shown. Not like that, but like this. They, they, they don't like what he has done. Such a proud person can never be satisfied or find satisfaction from God's love. The woman in the Song of Songs 
gets it right. She rejoices in the love that is given to her. It is better than wine, she says. Who is this woman? That's the next question we want to look at. She is the church. The church, which is the bride of Christ. We learned that last week. I mentioned in the introduction, she is the Shulamite. Her name in Hebrew means princess of peace. It's the feminine version of Solomon, which means the prince of peace. The princess of peace is the wife of the prince of peace. She became the princess of peace when she married him. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you, Jesus says. We saw that these names are allegorical, like Christian and Christiana in Pilgrim's Progress, though not similar to their relationship. The Song of Songs is not about the relationship of Solomon with one of his many wives. It's about much more than that. No, it's not just that, his uh, common relationship. It, It could not be the Song of Songs if it were only about that. Any more than Solomon could be called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords when we have the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no comparison between them. The Song of Songs is, as I said in the introduction, about our relationship with Christ. If indeed we are in a relationship with Him in a saving way. That means then, if you are in Christ, that this song is an expression of your love as the bride of Christ. You have tasted of His love and you want Him to keep on showing His love to you. To keep on expressing His love to you. You want Him to keep on kissing you. To keep on making His love known to you. And to your brothers and sisters with you in the church. Together the whole church says, let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. For your love is better than wine. We are His bride. We know His love because He has redeemed us. We know that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know that He called us by His powerful, mighty call so that we heard His voice and we came to Him to be His bride. He has called us to come to Him to entrust ourselves wholly to Him as our Lord and Savior, and we have done so. We have believed By His grace, we are joined to Him now in love. He showed us our sin and our need to be forgiven so that we would come to Him and realize why we were so resistant to Him and to His Father because of our our great sin. He showed us that so that we would see why it was necessary for Him to come and die on the cross for us. How He had to do that if He was to bear our iniquities and and bring pardon to us, make atonement for us. He was a priest offering a sacrifice because our sins were so great. And this only sacrifice that could be accepted was the sacrifice of Himself, which He freely gave. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He drew us to this. He softened us. He gave us new eyes. He gave us new ears. He gave us a new heart so that we would receive these truths and we would come to Him, that we would love the truth rather than hating the truth and having bitterness toward the truth that He has given us. By His grace, you see, we have come to Him. And He has washed us from our sins and clothed us with His own righteousness. And now He is preparing us for glory. He found us in an unclean, defiled state and He gathered us to Himself and He has blessed us and enriched us and given us clothes of righteousness to wear. His clothes. So that now, more and more, His love and power and majesty and teaching all comes to us as we learn to walk in His ways in His house. And now you see, having been loved so well by Him, we say, let Him keep on with this. Let Him keep on loving me as He has been doing. We are His bride. We have come to Him and we love Him. And we want Him to continue the work that He has begun. Let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth for your love is better than wine. We, the princes of peace, the Shulamite, the church of Jesus Christ, have many faces that desire His kisses. 
We are a great bride. We yearn for Him to show us His love to each of our members. We are one body and we want His kisses upon all of us. We want His kisses for the young among us who have just started out with Him. We want them to know the depths and the riches of the love of Christ. We want the older ones to to know His love, to remember His great love and not to forget it. Those who have been walking with Him for years and have a rich understanding of His love already, we want it to be richer still as we watch them with, with admiration and delight. We want His kisses for the men that they might be bold and strong and courageous in service to Him when they see His commitment to them. And we want them for the women that they might be secure in His love and serve Him with ardent devotion. We desire His kisses for the strong among us as well as for the weak, for the rich as well as for the poor, for the educated as well as for the uneducated. We want all in the body of Christ to experience His love. We want to see His love when He has deprived us of our riches and strength. We want Him to come and kiss us then. And we want to see it when He has given us much in this world. We don't want to forget Him and get lost in the things of the world. We want His kisses to continue so that we will give thanks for what we have received from His hand rather than forgetting Him. Some of us are in times of sorrow and some of us are in times of joy. In both situations, we want the kisses of Christ. As mentioned before, we do not dictate to him how he ought to love us. We do not say, Lord, if you really loved me, you would take this affliction away from me. That's the error that Job eventually fell into, and he repented in dust and ashes. We can ask God to relieve us of our affliction. It is right for us to do so. But we need to say, but Lord, what I want most of all is your kisses. Show me your love. If you're going to show me more of your love through my affliction, send the affliction on. We desire His kisses above all things. We're not the fussy bride that tells Him how He has to run things. We trust Him. We delight in Him to do what is good concerning us. Sometimes we're perplexed. Sometimes we see things clearly. In either case, We want Him to show His love to us in those times. We may be under persecution, or we may be in a time of great favor with the people that are around us. But our desire in either case is to see His love. We want Him to show us His love. We may be sick or we may be healthy, but none of that really matters to us. What matters is let Him kiss me with with the kisses of His mouth For your love is better than wine. And that brings us to the next question. How does Christ kiss his church? How does he do this? The answer is told to us in John 14. Uh, There's a problem in a sense, isn't there? Because obviously he came in the flesh, but he did not stay. He did not remain here among us. He ascended into heaven to the right hand of his father. So he has gone to glory to be with his father until his return. So does that mean that as his bride that we can only look for his kisses in the future? Well, certainly we do look for them in the future when he returns and when he gathers them to us to himself. And we are, I think, in a sense, the scripture presents us very often now is his wife who is betrothed to him. A betrothed woman was considered to be already a wife and she committed adultery if she broke away from him. But the, the marriage is yet to come at the end of the age and we're, we're waiting for that. So do we not receive kisses from him until then? Remember what his kisses are, the expression of his love toward us. Kisses are ways in which he says, I love you. Ways in which he makes his love known to us. That's what we're looking for. So how does he do that now that he's gone to be with the Father? That's what he tells us in John 14. First, let's look at the promise in John 14 that he will manifest his love to us. Or to put it in the language of the Song of Solomon, the poetic language, that he will keep kissing us. How will he do it? Let's see. John, Take a look at John 14, verse 18. He's talking about what he will do when he goes away from here 
to be with the Father, which, of course, is where he is now. Verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans who don't have parents to to kiss them and show love to them. He says, I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will live also at that day when he goes away. You will know that I am in the father and you and me and I in you. The, the relationship will be there. It will remain. He says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he's living for me, in other words. He's seeking to please me. It is he who loves me. Obviously, yes. I mean, if you, if you hate someone, you do things they, they don't like. If you love someone, you try to please them. And he says, he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will make myself known to him. I will make my love known to him. You see here, Jesus promises to love us and to manifest himself to us after he's gone. It's so important. If he didn't continue to do this, we would, we would have been swallowed up by despair long ago. The bride of Christ wouldn't be here today. We would have been in despair. Judas, not the betrayer, wonders how this love can be personalized. Lord, how can you distinguish us from others when you're not here to to kiss us and to walk with us and to go about with us? How can you distinguish your love to us when you're not here? Well, it's presented to us in verse 22 through 24. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How are you going to do this? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So he says that again. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He's going, but how? You said that you're going to be there and we're going to be here. How are you going to come to us and make your home with us? Jesus says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the words you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So what is he saying? He's saying, on your part, you continue in my word that I have given you. My word that has promises, that tells you of my love for you, that tells you of the ways that I want you to live as my bride. He, and his, he says, you do that, the Father and I are going to come and dwell with you. He and his Father will dwell in those who cherish his word. In other words, those who continue in his word, as he puts it sometimes. He's especially pleased to meet with us in the assembly when we gather together to hear his word or when we go to read the word ourselves or when, we, when we, uh, we're cherishing his word. This is what people do when they're born again. They cherish the words of their husband, of their master, though he is in heaven. But still, it's not a full answer, is it? How will he and the Father go about dwelling in people who continue in the word? How will they manifest their love to us? John 14, 25 through 26, he tells us the other part. That it will be through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how the kisses come. The Holy Spirit in us. Look, he says it, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, helper is one that comes beside you in order to help you to do whatever is needed to help you. It's a word paraclete, paraclao uh, in the, the verb form. But, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So the kisses of our Lord who is in heaven are impressed upon his bride on the earth by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he makes his love known to us by pouring out his spirit upon us. And the spirit uses the word to make his promises and his declarations of affection to us all the more real to us all the more meaningful to us. He drives it home. It's referred to in the old language as the shedding abroad of his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit or the pouring out of his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit takes the word of Christ, words of Christ and impresses them upon our very hearts. It's a kiss right upon our very heart. Jesus says, I love you by His Spirit working through the Word. You see, we must be wary of two dangers related to this. One danger is mysticism. Mysticism involves looking for the Spirit to speak to us apart from the Word of Christ. You run into this all the time in modern Christendom. The Word, the word of Christ, apart from the Word which today we have in our Scriptures, in the Holy Scriptures. The mystic is one who supposes that they are getting messages from Christ about His love apart from the Scriptures apart from what is taught in the Word. They say that they feel His presence with them. For example, maybe they have decided that their marriage isn't working out and they're going to get an unbiblical divorce. And they say, I have great peace. God has given me peace. I've prayed about it. And I believe that this is pleasing to Him. Where did that peace come from? Not from the Spirit of God because it's not according to the Word of God. Or they decide that they're going to live out their homosexual desires, and they say, oh, God has shown me His great love to me in doing this. I'm so much closer to Him now than I ever was before. No, that's not. That's contrary to God's Word. Or maybe they're doing worship, such as praying to the saints, and they say, oh, I got such comfort when I do this. It's so helpful to me. Well, that's not according to the Word of God. Warm feelings about God are not necessarily the Spirit of God. Especially, and they're definitely not, when they're not grounded in the truth of God's Word. And what is the truth? Jesus was asked, what is the truth? Your Word is truth, He said. He said that in John 17. Mysticism like this happens all the time. And here's the fundamental root of mysticism when it is... When, it, when it's in someone who's not even a believer. People suppose that and have strong feelings that God has spoken to them and that God has told them how much He loves them when they haven't even come to Christ to be saved. See, such people, they, they can feel all this love and talk about God talking to them all they want. But if they're outside of Christ, they have not embraced His salvation, they do not know the true love of God. They have never come to Him to see that they deserve God's eternal wrath and punishment and that the only way to be pardoned is by trusting in Christ who is crucified for His people's sins. Whatever warm feelings these persons may have about God's love for them, it is not the kisses of Jesus of Nazareth. It is not the kisses of the Son of God. It is something else. They are deceived. Oh, mysticism. Look out for that. When you're talking to people, they may speak highly about God and their feelings for Him, but find out, is it grounded in understanding that, that they have been redeemed by the blood of that one, that husband has come for them, that He's rescued them from sin, that He's brought them out of bondage, that He's paid an atoning sacrifice for theirs? If they don't know Him that way, they don't know Him at all. So you need to work at that, you see, to help them to, to move out of this mysticism. But, but I said there were two dangers. What's the other danger? The other danger is dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy occurs when we learn all the doctrines of the Christian faith. Maybe we've even memorized a solid confession or, or catechism or, or we, we've learned a confession. Or maybe we've memorized scripture and we can tell anyone about the way of salvation and how it all works and we can lay out the doctrines and things. But when we are cold about all this, when we don't regard the love of Christ as better than wine. Way down the list on, our, on our, uh, our, our order of things. In its worst form, dead orthodox, the dead orthodox person knows all the facts, but they never actually receive the gospel. As it says in Thessalonians, they do not receive the love of the truth. They have no love. They know the truth, but they have no love for the truth. They have the Word of God in the letter, but they do not have the Word of God in the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit of God. They are strangers to the love of God. They know nothing of Christ's kisses. Textbook faith, not living faith. 
You see then that the word and the spirit must go together. This is so important in all of the Christian life. As we witness to people, it's so important. The spirit causes the word to come to us with life-giving, transforming power so that we testify and believe that his love is better than wine. George Burroughs explains how this transforms us, how the the kisses of Christ and the, the knowledge of his love, how it transforms us. He says there is, speaking of it in comparison to wine, how it's better than wine, there is no stimulant so powerful, he says. It revolutionizes the heart as to make the ambitious man sacrifice his vanity, right? The man that's living for how high he is with his rank. The proud man, his reputation. Like Paul, he gave up his reputation. I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. The vindictive man, his vengeance. The kisses of Christ melt that vengeance, that bitterness toward those that have wronged you. The drunkard, his drunkenness. He has another spirit now. He's no longer drunk with wine or with drugs or things, but he's delighting in the spirit of God. The sensualist, his lust, the same thing. The pornography is not where he finds attraction, but in the kisses of the son of God. The miser, his gold, all for the name of Jesus Christ. Let me read it all together. There is no stimulant so powerful It revolutionizes the heart as to make the ambitious man sacrifice his vanity, the proud man his reputation, the vindictive man his vengeance, the drunkard his drunkenness, the sensualist his lust, the miser his gold, for the name of Jesus Christ. And he has more. It changes the parched ground of the selfish soul into a limpid pool of beneficence, of of generosity, and the thirsty land of the sensual heart, okay, the person that's always lusting after the things of the world, and the thirsty land of the sensual heart into water springs of holy affections. It is more than a temporary stimulant. That's what all these other things are, a temporary stimulant. This is something lasting. It is a relationship. Let me, so I'll read that last sentence all together without any comment. It changes the parched ground of the selfish soul into a limpid pool of beneficence and the thirsty land of the sensual heart into water springs of holy affections. It is more than a temporary stimulant. Now, the next question, what is it that makes this love so special? What is it that makes it so extraordinary? Simple answer, him. That's the answer, him. That's right. The reason the bride rejoices in his love is because of who he is. We are thrilled with his love because he's such an excellent one. Think about a bride if, or a woman, that, a husband, that, a man that she delights in, that she respects, that he admires, and he begins to show her attention. She's delighted because she's delighted in him. He's not just any man. You see, verse 3 explains why she finds his love to be so desirable. It is because, she says, of the fragrance of your good ointments. Now, this is really more an exclamation. The word because is added in the New King James, and uh, it's really not in a lot of the other versions. But uh, she is actually just exclaiming here about how nice he smells. Indeed, she is giving the reason why she thinks his love is better than wine. Because of the aroma that comes off of him. In the Bible times, people were really into precious oils. You remember how Jesus commended the woman who anointed him with the precious oil that cost about as much as a a, a pretty nice SUV or or uh, about $35,000 or something like that. When she opened up the oil and poured it on him, it filled the whole room with the delightful essence. It, 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 ple- it was a pleasing aroma to everyone who was there, to their delight. The bride goes on to say of him that your name is ointment poured out, poured forth. The idea here is that what exudes from him 
is delectable. It's, it's delightful. It's pleasing. It's something that is desirable and excellent. His name, we learned about that looking at the third commandment. It's his reputation, all that is known about him. You see, all that he is, all that is known of him is like a precious aroma that fills the room. Mention of his name brings the delight of the aroma of who he is, the savor, the excellence is seen. And and here's here's the beauty of it. He loves me. He loves the bride. This one, this one loves her. Isn't that what makes God so love, God's love so special? That it is He who loves us. It's not anyone. It's He, the Son of God. That's what thrills a young bride. That He loves me. He loves me. A man so excellent. A man so pleasing. Think of it. He is a prince. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Son of God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And He kisses us. Lowly creatures, He kisses us. He comes to us. That one is the one who kisses us. It's extraordinary. If, if some important person came and showed special attention to you, it would be very significant. How much more when it is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? He is holy. He is pure and undefiled. And yet, He has set His love on us. So much so that He purified us with His own blood. He kisses us even though we're an unclean leper before Him. He comes and He lays kisses upon us. He is also mighty. The name that is above every name He is the Almighty One. We're so safe in His love. A bride that has a a man that that can defend her and that can protect her, that loves her. She's safe. No one can harm us. He overcomes Satan. He overcomes death. He overcomes our corruption and our sin. He overcomes the world. He who kisses us is also wise. He has wisdom that is incomparable to any other. He always knows what is best. He always does what is best because He loves us. He kisses us with His love. He knows how to lead us. He knows the way that we need to go. He is also rich, providing us with an inheritance in glory in a city that He is building for us, a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God with pearly gates and precious jewels all around. He who kisses us is a forgiving one who holds no grudge against us with all the shortcomings that we have, all the failings that we have. He is merciful and gracious to us, ever merciful. He kisses us. He he knows our weaknesses. He sustains us and upholds us. He is generous beyond all measure. He is kind. He is beautiful. He is majestic. He is noble. And He is the one who kisses us. The savor of His garments, everything about Him, His name is an ointment poured forth. He is a great one. He is an excellent one. And He is faithful. What does a bride want? She wants a man that is going to be committed to her, that is going to make promises and keep those promises and never leave her or forsake her, that He's going to abide. He's not going to find another and run off. He's going to to stay with her, devoted to her, not fickle. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. We could go on and speak of him as the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life, the light of the world, the star of David, the branch, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. We could go on and on and on. His name is an ointment poured forth. How savory he is to us. He who kisses us, this one, with his love. How we yearn for his kisses. How we yearn for the expression of the love of one who is so high and so beautiful. If he shows us his love, it is enough. It doesn't matter what is going on in our life. If he is kissing us, it is enough. And now we come to... Our last question. 
who are the ones that love him? The virgins. That's the answer. These are the ones who have seen his name as an ointment poured forth. There's a church that professes him, but that church is a mixed company of believers and unbelievers. The professing church is always a mixture of wheat and tares. The virgins are the one within the church who love him because they see that his name is an ointment poured forth. Thinking of the parable of the sower, they're not the ones who decide that the world has more attractions. They're not the ones who decide that the troubles of the world repulse, turn them away from him because he's not taking away those troubles. No, these are the ones that, that delight in his name as an ointment poured forth. And they're devoted to him. They are virgins. They are his true bride, the church for which he died. The ones who receive and have received the kisses of his love. John the, the Apostle describes them in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 14, 3 and 4. First, he tells us that they sing a song that others cannot learn. A song? A song of songs? They sing the song of songs. They know the new song. Revelation 14, 3, he says of them, they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who are redeemed from the earth. The song of songs resonates only in them because they know the Lamb and they know the love of the Lamb. For He is the husband to whom they are betrothed. And you see how this ties in what we saw in John 14? It's the word and spirit together. You can have the words of the song. Anyone can learn the words and say the words, but you don't know the song. You don't know the kisses. You don't know the reality of it. The song of songs. Second, he tells us that they are virgins because they only have eyes for Christ, which is what I was describing before. Verse 4, Revelation 14, 4. It says, These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. They have eyes for Him instead of for the passing treasures of the world. They know the song of songs because they love Him. He has ravished their heart and they follow him as his bride. Their delight is in his kisses instead of in the kisses of another. And this is very important. And you need to be honest here. Do you know his kisses? Do you know his love? Are his kisses your desire? Do you seek the expressions of his love? Or is that nothing to you? When you sin, are you content to just go on in your sin? Do you know what that tells me? You don't have a relationship with God. You don't know what it is to walk in the light of his love. To be with him, receiving his kisses. Because you can live in sin without even caring or repenting. There's a problem there. There's something missing there. Do you seek his kisses when you're in hard times? Do you become bitter and turn away from him? Now you might not struggle with, God, would you love me? You might struggle like Job did, but he couldn't, he, he kept hanging on to the Lord. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that, that he's going to, to come through for me. You become bitter and cold? Or do you forget him in the good times? Everything's going well. Oh, I, why should I think about God now? I'm happy. Everything's great. You don't know the kisses of his love. There's something wrong there. Something that needs to be rectified. Of course we all come short. That's why he died for our sins. Job, the godliest of men, had to repent in dust and ashes because of his shortcomings. But if your love is not for him, if you just have a token Christianity, and you do not live for his pleasure, if your love is elsewhere, then you're not part of his bride. You're not a virgin. Not a virgin for Christ. One who is devoted to him. You need to rectify that at once. How do you rectify that? You humble yourself. You humble yourself. Become broken and contrite in your heart. Lord, I've missed you. I've missed the way. Lord, you have to save me. Lord, I cast myself on you. You're my savior. You're the only savior. 
Lord, take me and make me your own. Lord, take me and pardon all my sins. Lord, transform me. Give me a new heart for you. You cast yourself on him. Don't go on living apart from Christ and his love. He calls us. He calls any, everyone. Come to me and I will give you rest. You will not be disappointed if you come to him. Why? His name is an ointment poured forth. Can you see that? He is the one, this excellent one, is the one who kisses us, who loves his bride, who provides for her, who does everything, who finds her in her filth and defilement, and who clothes her and brings her to himself to live in his house forever. His kisses are better than wine. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Yes, indeed, let him kiss us when we come to church. Let him kiss us when we pray at home. Let him kiss us when we're in trials. Let him kiss us when we're weak and when we're strong. When we're sick and when we're well. His kisses can meet you wherever you are in whatever your circumstances. Sickness, persecution, injury, nothing can separate you from his love in Christ Jesus. His love is better than wine. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Lord, we stand before you now and we ask you, O Lord, to wed us to Jesus Christ, that we would be with him in the bonds of matrimony, of holy matrimony. Father, we desire to be kissed with the kisses of his lips because his love is better than wine, because his name as ointment poured forth. He savors of excellence all around, all about him is delectable and delightful. And we pray, O Lord, that you would give us eyes to see this. We confess that we are dull and that we do not see as we should. Perhaps there are some here that do not see at all, that are blind and have never come to delight in Christ and to see that he is the best of all. O Father, have mercy. Deliver the soul of the lost. But we pray also, Lord, for those of us who do know him. Father, we desire to see more. We, we come with Moses' prayer. He saw your glory and then he said, Lord, show me your glory. He wanted to see more of your glory. He wanted to come nearer to you, to, to see your excellence, how praiseworthy you are, to, to, to smell the savor of your good ointments. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant this to us. For, Lord, we are your bride And you are our provider. You are our redeemer. You are our husband. You have taken our debt. You have clothed us with righteousness. You have given us a new heart and a new life and a new house with a new inheritance, with a new father. Oh, Lord, you have blessed us so very richly. And we do love you, oh, Lord. But we hesitate to even say that we love you because our love is so shallow. It's so not what it should be. Father, we see that the attractions of the world often catch our eye. The attractions of sin and lust. And we're so easily drawn away. Sometimes we yield to those desires and attractions. But oh Lord, if we are those who are yours, we are quickly broken when we do that. We cannot go on. We cannot go on with those those fake lovers, those faulty lovers, those idols that will never measure up to the great love that is in Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, then that you would draw us back to you. How we look forward, Lord, to the, uh, the scripture verse that we look at ne- next week that follows this. It says, draw me away. Draw me to you. O oh Lord, that is our prayer after hearing this as it was the bride's prayer. Draw us to yourself, O oh Lord. Bring us near to you that we might delight in who you are. 
Help us, O Lord, as a bride to, to care for one another. And when we see any part of us, Lord, we are all one bride. And when we see a member that is suffering, that we would suffer with that member and we would point them to Christ. That we would direct them to the source of our joy and our hope, to the good savor of your ointments that are, 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 that are spread forth, Lord, that, that exude from you, that, that fill, fill the palaces of your house, O Lord, the good ointments of your house. O Lord, we come into your presence and in your light we see light. For your name is an ointment poured forth. We pray, O Lord, that the word of God would go forth with power and that it would bring that light to the nations, that people might see your glory and that they might come to delight in you. Turn us, Lord, from all of the vanity, all the vain things. We know that in the book that is before Song of Solomon, that that Solomon just got finished saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that the whole of man is to fear God, to know you and to delight in you, O Lord, and to keep your commandments, to devote ourselves wholly to you, to serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or as we said in the confession today, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength. O Lord, help us, O Lord, that we might be a devoted bride to you that we might, because of your great love, love you. We know that if we try to love you as a raw duty without faith, without delighting in your love that in which, with which you have loved us and forgiven us, we will fail. We will never be able to walk with you. We will never be able to serve you. Oh, Lord, then have mercy upon us, Lord, and shine your light upon us, the light of your love. Kiss us with the kisses of your lips that we might know your love and that we might serve you out of delight of that love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, in coming to the Lord's table today, let's look for the kisses of his mouth here at this table for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in the body. Whenever you come to church, it would be a good prayer, wouldn't it, to ask him to, to kiss me with the kisses of your mouth, for your love is better than wine, to, to seek that as we, as we come before him to, to worship him. And so when we come to the Lord's table even more, he promises to meet us here by his spirit, does he not? Because here he sets before us the testimony of his love, going, give, of giving himself to die on the cross. The great expression of the love of our husband. When his spirit works in you to bring this testimony home to you, then you're kissed by the son. That's what you want. You want to see this testimony of his love when you come to this table. You want to see afresh what he has done for you in a way that, that invigorates you, that is, is better than wine, that refreshes you in your walk, that rejuvenates you, that brings gladness to your heart. His kisses will invigorate and encourage you. May the Spirit of God meet us as we come to this table to receive the testimony of his great grace and love. Listen to the words of institution from Matthew 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. At this table, his name is revealed to us. His name at this table is as an ointment poured forth. We will have none of the adding of incense and bells to this ceremony because we belong to the New Testament times. We have the Spirit of God now. We have very simple symbols of bread and wine because our goal is not to be stimulated by the bread and wine. We only drink a small cup. But rather, 
to be stimulated by the remembrance of him who is now revealed in the gospel, by the delight that we have in the truth, in the words that his body, symbolized by the bread, was given for us, that his blood was shed for the remission of our sins, and that he whose name is above every name has sealed his covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, he says. We delight then in word and spirit together so that we enjoy for all eternity him as our husband who has reconciled us forever. Truly, it is his name that is an ointment that is poured forth here when we receive the word of truth and the Holy Spirit works in our heart that we might receive the love of the truth. Let us come in faith then to receive the testimony of his spirit and the kisses of his love. But do not come here unless you are a spiritual virgin who is betrothed to him as his wife, one who has left idols to serve the true God, to embrace his salvation. This table is not for outsiders. You must be one who has professed faith in him too as your redeemer, one who is currently a member in good standing of his church. Let's pray and ask him to bless us. Lord God, as we come before you, we come with thanksgiving that our Lord Jesus Christ, his name is an ointment poured forth, a savory ointment, a good ointment. We praise you, O Lord, that everything about him exudes excellence, that which is precious. We see here the revelation of what he did for us, brought to our eyes and brought even to our lips as we eat the bread and drink the wine. But Father, it is not the taste of the wine or the taste of the bread, but it is what it points to. It is our Lord Jesus Christ crucified. It is him given to us in covenant promise to be our redeemer, to save us from our sins. And we pray, O Lord, that we would come by the power of word and spirit. And O Lord, that you would take your word and that you would cause it to resound in our hearts that we might see our Savior as an ointment poured forth, as, as one who is lovely, who is beautiful, whose grace is delectable, whose love is delightful. Father, we are here before you looking to be refreshed in your grace. Please, Lord, we need to love you more. We need more light. We need to see more of your glory. We need to see more of what Christ has done for us. Oh, Lord, the depth of his love, the depth of the riches of his love. We pray, Lord, that you would show us your glory. Here now, Lord, visit us, meet with us, bless us. Bless this bread, bless this wine. For, Lord, we desire to receive of Christ and all that he has done for us. We ask this in his name. Amen. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.